Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Shine Bright Like the Firmament podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Shepley. And with me this morning, I have Mike Corcoran. How are you, Mike? I'm doing well, Madeline. How are you? Not too bad for a Friday morning. I mean, the weather isn't too clear outside, but other than no, that, it looks like... here in Maryland, but uh, <laughs> usually is... Friday mornings I enjoy. But uh, yeah, a you guys must have gotten the rain that we got yesterday in Indiana. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. Yeah. Well, other than the gloomy and rainy weather, it's going to be a great day. So we might as well just jump right into it. You ready? Okay. Yeah, sure. Awesome. For my listeners that don't know you, why not you give a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Well, I grew up in Queens, New York. I cool. went to a Catholic grammar school, parochial or parochial school, and then a uh, all-boys Catholic high school in Flushing, New York. Nice. And I went to college at Cornell University, where I studied physics and uh, concentrated in uh, astrophysics. Went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in the uh, Department of Astrophysics, where I got Mm -hmm. my uh, PhD and started working. This was a long time ago, about 40 years ago, at Goddard Space Flight Center. And I've been there in one form or another ever since. That's awesome. I didn't realize how much the East Coast was ingrained in your being because I knew that you worked for Goddard and all that, but I didn't realize just how deep it And you even yeah. have both kind of aspects of New York in you. You have the city New York, and then you've got the more upstate New York. It's very true. We uh, have been, most. my family is mostly uh, concentrated on the East Coast, or at least they were when I was uh, younger. Uh, they've sort of spread out since. But I still go up there and uh, enjoy uh, getting a, a knish and a hot dog and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, see, my dad is a New Yorker himself, so we were raised to be selective with your pizza are you the same way oh yeah yeah my wife and i have a my wife's from uh, north jersey and they have the same pizza you know tastes that the new yorkers have so uh, one of the things about living in maryland we've always complained about is it's hard to find very good pizza it's hard to find really well okay Asterisk, I'm from near Chicago, and so uh, uh, we're near another great pizza tradition, but yeah. gotta love that good New York-style pizza, and it is hard to find in the Midwest. Yeah, the thin crust is very good. There's a couple of places by us that we've found over the years, but typically you can't just go anywhere and get a slice of pizza, and it's expected to be very good. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Well, yeah, so you've basically spent a lot of your life on the East Coast. And ironically enough, I met you on the West Coast when we we're at AAS. That's true. But what what inspired you to become an astronomer? Well, you know, I was growing up when I was a kid, I was, you know, it was the 1960s. So there was a lot of discussions about space and outer space in particular and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, astronauts and things in the, in the culture and in the media. And I just found that really fascinating. And you know, it sort of sounds almost stupid to say, but popular shows like Star Trek and Lost in Space. I remember <laughs> when we were kids, we'd you know, actually play out an episode. You know, we'd get together in the woods and play out episodes of these shows. So it was, it was really, uh, that sort of got me interested. And, you know, oddly, uh, when you're outside in Queens, you don't see, you, you maybe see five <laughs> stars or something, you know, on the moon. Yeah. So we didn't have great skies. But nevertheless, I enjoyed looking at the, the the stars and wondering, you know, what's out there and reading about science, reading science fiction and, and just uh, something that uh, I developed a great love for. The whole concept of not only the solar system, but a ga- the galaxy and what lies beyond. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's really cool. I've definitely been taking a lot of inspiration from sci-fi this year because mm -hmm. yeah. probably like five or six of the last few books that, that I've read have been sci-fi mm -hmm. yeah. in the past year and it never ceases to just grab my imagination. Right, right. I always think it's funny, you know, when I was young and you'd watch a science fiction movie or a TV show, the effects were so simple. Yeah, and reality was much more complex and uh, much in more interesting. But now it's almost the reverse. That special effects have gotten so complex that the uh, reality has a hard time keeping up. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite sci-fi book or movie or show? Well, it's both the same, actually. It's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a classic favorite. one. And one yeah. I have not seen all the way through, actually. Is that right? It has a sort of a strange ending, but uh, yeah, I think it's quite beautiful and helps put things in sort of richer context, I think, about where you know, humankind fits in with everything. Yeah. One of these days the I have to watch it. book is great, too. If you have, if you, by Arthur Clarke and yeah. Joe. Yeah, I'll probably have to, I'll have to read. See, what's funny is I've been finding out a, a lot of the great sci-fi books from their film or show adaptions. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I found out about Dune, The Expanse. Mm -hmm. What yeah. else do I know from? And I've read a little bit of The Expanse and I'm currently reading Dune. So yeah. the cool thing about like the TV shows and movies, they've kind of revived interest in these classic books. Yeah, yeah Dune is another favorite of mine. And HBO has that new adaption of it, of course. It's uh, pretty well done. Yeah, it was really cool. I have seen the movie probably twice at least the and david lynch have you seen the david lynch version i'm trying to oh right that one has multiple i've only seen the newest adaption yeah yeah well the david lynch one is interesting it's sort of it's sort of a terrible movie but it's almost so terrible it's good <laughs> Those are great. Those are great. So you got into astronomy because in a large part because of sci-fi. When you're getting interested in astronomy, clearly since you grew up during the 60s, the whole moon thing was inspired. But did you mm -hmm. have a particular area of astronomy that you're like, wow, that's like cooler than the rest? Or was it all just cool? Well, you know, when I was thinking about becoming an astronomer, an astrophysicist, cosmology always fascinated me. I soon realized I'm not smart enough to do cosmology. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just the origin, how the universe came into existence and how it evolved is just, just fascinating. You know, just the idea that it wasn't until Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin uh, understood what the uh, the sun was made out of, for example. Yeah. And, you know, just fascinating, you know, and just understanding that the universe is actually composed of very simple stuff and it develops into more complex things. And of course, today we know that most of the universe we don't even understand is all dark matter and dark energy. Yeah. Yeah. One of my professors actually like sent us like an article. I forget where the article was from, but it was about dark energy. And I guess some astronomers recently discovered link between dark energy and black holes. And I was like, whoa, that's really cool because dark energy, even for astronomers, is kind of this very mysterious thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's some discussion about that now, whether black holes could, could help power dark energy. And there's, of course, been discussions as to how much they contribute to dark matter and so forth. But that's all above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, it's above my pay grade, too, because I'm an, well, I'm an 
observationalist and an optical one at that. So right. it's very, very far above my pay grade. Right, right. So yeah. uh, what kind of research do you do? I do, well, I've done multiple things. I started off as a an extragalactic astronomer and I studied dwarf galaxies and star formation. But uh-huh. now, oh, yeah, I jokingly like, like to call myself in agent of shield because the acronym uh-huh. of the project was shield but not uh-huh. in the marvel sense of the word <laughs> <laughs> but now where i'm at i do variable star research and planetarium research oh nice yeah so i've got my hand in multiple different modes of research over the years mm-hmm. yeah, great yeah which speaking of which you mentioned that you work at goddard spaceflight in some capacity so mm-hmm. what kinds of things have you been involved in researching? Right. So uh, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, they had a very strong department. It was very strong and actually studied variable stars and binary stars. Solid. And uh, yeah, and I did my research on very massive binaries. And I got uh, hired at Goddard by uh, a woman named Sally Heap, who had a Mm -hmm. big influence on my career to study uh, mostly ultraviolet emission from these very massive binaries. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about massive binaries is the stars can be so bright that they basically blow themselves apart. They eject (laughs) these strong stellar winds out into space. This is one of the ways in which the uh, stars enrich the interstellar medium and let planets form. Um, But if you have these two stars in a binary, the winds have to collide somewhere in between the stars and the winds are moving very fast, so they basically have a lot of kinetic energy. And when they collide, the, all that kinetic energy is released as heat. Mm-hmm. And so they generate temperatures of millions or tens of millions of degrees and produce x-rays. Yeah, it's so almost sound- like a interstellar life in the fast lane. These yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, they live fast and uh, die young and uh, leave interesting looking corpses. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) So I thought of that because surely you know maybe a little bit about James Dean, the Mm -hmm. um, act. I forget. He was like an actor in like what, the 50s or something like that? 50s, yeah. Yeah. Known for his living life in the fast lane. And he was actually from not far away from where I currently live. Oh, is that right? I kid you not, every single time I drive to and from home, I see a sign on the side of the road that says, James Dean Museum this way. Oh, wow. Have you ever gone? No, but it's on my bucket list. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. He's an interesting James Dean. Although I don't I don't watch a lot of his movies, just you know, some of them, Rebel Without a Cause and so forth. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, you know, Sally got me on the puzzle of trying to connect the X-ray emission from these systems, these massive binaries with the ultraviolet emission. And so I got involved in looking at X-ray emission from these stars. And uh, just about this same time, the U.S. was part of a, a project to launch a X-ray satellite called ROSAT. Yeah, I've heard of the, that. Yeah, it was a major uh, observatory to produce the first all-sky map and X-rays, imaging all-sky map and X-rays. That's awesome. So people are still studying that to this day. Um, but that was going to be launched, and they were Goddard was part of that and looking for people to help out. So I decided to help out with that and moved into the X-ray, moved into working with the X-ray astronomers at Goddard, and that 
that's sort of been where I've been ever since. Yes. Um, yeah. I worked on Rosa for a long time. And then also about the same, well, a few years later, Goddard was building a an archive of high energy astrophysics uh, data. Yeah. And I got that hired onto that project. And uh, actually, I've been working with that archive. It's called the HIASARC, the High Energy Astrophysics oh, yeah. Science Archive Research Center. Yeah. I think so. One of the other things that Ball State kind of does research in is high energy astrophysics. Mm -hmm. And some of my fellow grad students, they, one of our professors, he likes to call himself an astronomer by accident because uh, he's more of a physicist, but he does research in astronomical objects and they do a lot of research with high energy emission and they'll do research on like pulsars and I think maybe a little bit of AGN as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm sort of, you know, uh, most of my colleagues do study these really exotic objects like pulsars and black holes and accreting black yeah. holes and supermassive black holes and intermediate mass black holes. But I, I think stars are actually fascinating and the way they generate these high energy emissions is uh, is really tells you a lot about the systems and it also has yeah. a bearing, you know, forming planets and, uh, and chemistry on those planets and maybe even forming life. So it's, uh, yeah, I just find that fascinating. Yeah. So you then study x-rays and high energy emissions from more what we would consider more ordinary objects then. Yeah, sort of. The stars by themselves are pretty, can be pretty extraordinary. I mean, if you just look at our sun compared to the size of the earth and so forth, it's You're uh, not wrong. a pretty amazing thing. But, uh, you know, I always get the interest of my colleagues by telling them like, well, you study black holes and neutron stars. Well, I'm studying the progenitors of those systems. So, you know, you have to get from these objects to those objects and how exactly that happens no one's quite sure at the moment so that's why you have a you paycheck know, <laughs> exactly and there's a lot of open questions about how much mass is a very massive star can can lose while it's living and that determines how much energy is generated when it explodes and and so forth so yeah yeah it's all connected it's all good yeah so you've done a lot of work with x-rays and i remember something i noticed when i was looking at your name tag at AAS is you had i don't know is cross-listing a right you know how, like your institutional affiliation mm -hmm. so you were at was it the chandra booth or something like that uh, the fermi booth actually fermi yeah i was like yeah. not chandra yeah. was one of the high energy it was close to chandra booth but yeah so you were at the i encountered you at the fermi booth in the exhibit hall right but I remember that your name tag for AAS had a different institutional affiliation. And right. I was wondering how all that worked. Yeah, so it's a little bit complicated, but I actually work, I get paid by uh, the Catholic University of America. Cool. And that's in uh, Washington, D.C. But it's under a cooperative agreement, somewhat uh, like a contract, with the Goddard Space Flight Center. So Goddard hires both civil servant scientists. Mm-hmm. But they also hire a lot of contract scientists like myself to do a lot of the research that Goddard needs to do and fulfill some of the programmatic activities like help manage the archive that I was talking about earlier. And they do this through a cooperative agreement through an organization which is even more complicated called the Center for Research and Exploration in Space Science and Technology, well, that's... of which... That's an acronym. Yeah. It's a fun acronym. And Catholic University and the University of Maryland at College Park and the University of Maryland in Baltimore County are the three organizations that make up this center, which is called CREST. Nice. So I work for Catholic University through CREST at the HESARC at Goddard Space Flight Center. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, the whole uh, sad story, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then you're a contract scientist? Is yes, that one? Yeah. So then do you... I'm a little bit unfamiliar as to how that kind of thing... Because most of the people I've ever worked with, they work directly with a university. And when they get their data, they make a proposal to right. a facility, whether it's ground-based or space-based, and they either get the proposal or they don't. Right. But how is a contract scientist different? And maybe how even is it the same? Yeah, so it's different in the sense that uh, there are no teaching responsibilities. So if you're a faculty, you know, you are put in charge of teaching teaching a couple classes and so forth, and uh, you get mm -hmm. your summers off. So we don't get our summers off, but we don't have to teach. But we do have what we call programmatic responsibilities, mm -hmm. things like doing this archive management and answering user questions and, and making sure the data that are being put out there are uh, all correct and valid and so forth. But on the other hand, you know, just like a research uh, scientist, faculty at a university, a contract scientist at uh, a government lab like Goddard is also mm -hmm. has time set aside to do research. So one of the important things like with the HESARC is that they want people not only to manage the data, but actually use the data. So then you can sort of anticipate issues and things that other people outside, you know, in the, re in the broader research community might want to do with the data. And so everyone at the HESARC is an active scientist and uh, we publish, you know, in the referee journals and uh, yeah. our different disciplines that we like and that we do uh, our research in. Yeah. It's almost like then you're, for lack of a better word, you're almost like the lab rat where you get to dive headfirst into it and get to be the pioneer in the data and figure out right in some ways it's best it's like practices that. yeah looking at best practices and trying to make things easier for uh, for the broader community like why wouldn't it be nice if we had this software tool or or why yeah. we can have data available this way what if we could do it this way it would be much easier for people or uh, trying to keep up with the uh, latest software and analysis trends like uh, python is a very yeah. big uh, now and so we're trying to integrate our software more with the Python community and uh, improve our workflows and things like that. Yeah, I've been using quite a bit of Python in, well, I haven't used it, or well, the the main package that I currently use is based around Python. There's this, um, well, you might have heard of its precursor code because you've done some variable star and binary star work, but have you ever heard of the Wilson Divini code? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. So I use kind of its successor called Phoebe and it's oh, got yeah. <laughs> some Python handling that's done. So it's Python's become somewhat entrenched in my life. Right, right, right. So I think, I mean, right now that's the way things are certainly moving. And then you have the whole uh, ability to develop code and analysis routines and tutorials and Jupyter Notebooks. So we're doing, Ooh, trying to yes. do a lot. So, yeah. you know, a year, 10 years ago, we we're writing a lot of PDF documents about how to do things and how you can do them in Jupyter Notebooks and people can read and actually do it. So, yeah. That's yeah. a really important thing. Yeah. I've gotten a great appreciation of Jupyter. Jupiter notebooks. I first learned about them when I was a junior at IU. And mm. I was just like, wow, these are really cool. Plus I can work on my Jupyter notebook anywhere. And then mm -hmm. some of the tutorials for the most recent version of Phoebe involve Jupyter mm -hmm. notebooks, which is yeah. pretty convenient. Right, right. You can change a few lines in the code and actually run it on the object you're interested in. And that really makes it uh, makes yeah. things go more quickly. Yeah. So you said that 
contract scientists, they're active scientists, especially for what you're doing. Do you have a favorite thing you've worked on recently? Well, yeah, my most favorite thing. So we, as I was mentioning, we're studying these uh, massive binaries where the winds collide, called colliding wind binaries. Yeah. I spent a lot of time, more than 20 years more than, well, 30 years, studying this one particular object, Eta Carina, which is a fascinating oh, yeah. object. But the most fascinating, I think, recently is uh, we've had a study of another colliding wind binary called WR140. It's a Wolf-Rayet system, which simply yeah. means it's a really massive star. Well, at one time it was a really massive star, but now the star <laughs> is like a very thick wind that they uh, <laughs> makes these objects almost impossible to study because you're trying to look through the all you see is the wind you don't see the, see the star but anyway this system is in a really long period eight year highly eccentric orbit and for wow. a brief period of time the two stars get very close together when that happens even though this wind collision is at a temperature of tens of millions of degrees somehow when the two stars are close together in certain certain part of the collision uh, it gets cool enough that dust forms so there's a temperature gradient of like a million degrees 10 million degrees down to about a thousand degrees and so it's, you know, it's huge. We don't really understand exactly how that happens. Yeah. But uh, we looked at this system with JWST. And previously, before JWST, you could see when this dust formed, you'd you'd see a shell and you could see it move outwards and then it got too far. You couldn't see it anymore. But JWST is so sensitive that you can actually trace out 15 of these shells that were generated over the last, uh, you know, 120 years or so. So you can see how these shell, how the, uh, this process has played out over 120 years. And you can see how these stars are giving off dust to the interstellar medium. And dust, you know, people think dust is a nuisance, you know, at your house, <laughs> a lot of dust but dust is extremely important in terms of the astrophysical uh, evolution of the of the universe. Yeah, if if you don't have dust, you don't really have us. Exactly, it's important. This is these are all hydrocarbon uh, chains of molecules. So the these systems like WR one forty are seeding the uh, the galaxies uh, with these hydrocarbons, and they can collect and help new stars form and create planets and form uh, all sorts of. Yeah, it reminds me. There's this really cool planetary show called we are stars mm -hmm. this is really cute well, it's basically an animated show, but it traces you from like the beginning of the universe to creation of life. And it uh, shows how just the astronomical influences that are necessary in order for that to happen. And one of which mm -hmm. is stars as they die, seeding the universe right. with all the heavy elements. Right. Which if you don't have the heavy elements, you don't have the Earth or us. That's exactly that's exactly right. The interesting thing about these sort of colliding wind systems, these massive colliding wind systems is that early on, right after, shortly after the Big Bang, first stars that formed were these very massive stars because there, were, there was no dust to allow smaller stars to form. So the stars yeah. had to be extremely massive. And if you had binary systems, these massive colliding wind binary systems back then, this, they could have helped produce the first carbonaceous uh, dust in the uh, so that uh, and that would have a big could have a, potentially have a big impact on understanding how you know the population of <clears two throat> stars smaller stars and, and eventually leading to uh, solar type stars and planets and things yeah it kind of gives the phrase we are dust and the dust we shall return a whole new meaning right yeah exactly exactly which really i think does. is kind of fitting since ash wednesday is next week yes yes <laughs> So now people can, it's too bad this episode won't come out before then, 
because people could think of, oh, hey, they could think of stars while they're right. getting ashes on their forehead. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which honestly is a great segue into my next question, which is okay. another aspect of my podcast besides science is faith. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you what your faith life has been like. Yeah. So, you know, I think these are faith and science is sort of, for me, sort of two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I enjoy thinking about, uh, as I mentioned, like sort of like cosmology, like how the universe began and yeah. where we came from and all this. And yeah, you know, that that not only has scientific aspects to it, but also has religious and faith aspects to it. That, yeah. that, that, that question, of course. And so I think for me, that's been one of the drivers in my life is it's trying to uh, incorporate those two things from the scientific point of view, but also from the, uh, the more religious, more faith-based point of view as well. So, yeah. you know, as I mentioned, I grew up at a time in the 60s in a Catholic school where we still had nuns. But uh, yeah, because we but, don't really uh, have nuns often in Catholic schools anymore. At least the one that was with my church didn't. Yeah, no. My son went to Catholic school and there were no no nuns either. Yeah. But nevertheless, I mean, it was an interesting time and the people were open to, to really discussing how science plays a role in sort of driving your faith. Well, you know, both faith and science, I think, are fundamentally come down to a search for truth. Exactly. If you're, if you're looking for truth, then that's a good thing. And you can do that scientifically. And you can also do that through more faith, faith-based means. But I think I was really lucky in the environment I grew up in because uh, both in grammar school and high school, that distinction was very clear and people were encouraged to think scientifically about trying to understand the world. I think one of the issues I have with things you see in the, today is, you know, sometimes people sort of cut off. They say, okay, you can either believe the Bible or you can believe Isaac Newton. <laughs> yeah. you know, why exactly, not believe both? Right, right. You know, so places where the Bible says, you know, the earth, the sun goes around the earth rather is, well, obviously that's not taken to be scientific truth because, you know, that doesn't, doesn't happen. And, I, you know, when I was growing up, that distinction was very clear that some things you can believe you can understand through faith and you can understand through science and they don't always need to overlap you'll never find a scientific answer to a lot of faith-based questions like what is love for example which i mean what is love is a very important question it's central to the christian faith right but with the different questions for truth you almost in a sense you have to figure out is this more of a science question is this more of a faith question or can it shed light on both right right it's kind of like how you know how like in astronomy depending on what you study you need a different wavelength of light mm-hmm. you right oh, for example jwst since it's an infrared it can really peer through dust whereas the say x-ray binaries or really massive stars that give off a lot of high energy light you might want to choose maybe an ultraviolet mission or an x-ray mission or we're getting really right. wild out there gamma ray instruments so it's almost like that where you got to find the right tool with which to peer the question through. Yeah, I think that that's exactly, that's a good way to put it. And, you know, we've even seen things recently like emerging supermassive black holes that we never had an inkling that these things are happening because they don't generate any radiation except for uh, gravitational radiation. Yeah. So, you know, so we could understand the universe in terms of the gravitational wave universe if we you know, couldn't tell these things were happening now that now we know they happen all the time. Yeah, it's like we have a new set of glasses where, yeah. whoa, it's all right. crisp. Right, exactly. And yeah, I think 
faith can help. Faith and science, I think, are somewhat intertwined, but I do draw the line sort of with people who try to use science to prove their faith, you know, like, I really think that faith is something you can't prove scientifically, you know, it just deals with these, like I was saying, deals with these questions that just don't really have a scientific answer. And so yeah. that's the, you know, faith is the tool that you need to address those kinds of questions. Yeah. And you ask yourself, how many supermassive black holes emerging, you need LIGO, you need a gravitationally <laughs> sensitive enough that can answer that question. Yeah, yeah. Something that I'm always interested in when I talk with fellow Catholic scientists is how do you include prayer in your day? Because prayer is an important part of who we are as Christian, because prayer is a, like a conversation with God. And if we, since Christianity kind of hinges on having a personal relationship with God, then prayer is very necessary. Right. So, you know, I don't get through a day without praying, you know, I don't necessarily get down on my knees and, you know, kneel by my bed and, and pray. But every day there's something that comes up, I pray, you know, my son is on a trip, you know, I pray for him that he's going to be safe and my wife, you know, and, and whether this you know, new observation is going to work out or, <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. or something. It always makes me smile sort of about these discussions about faith, prayer in schools and everything. As long as there are tests in schools, there's prayer in schools. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody prays for yeah, that they do well on a test and everything. Yeah, it reminds yeah. me the, of the St. Joseph of Cupertino prayer, where mm -hmm. the story goes behind the prayer that he needed to do well on this one exam, and he just, he wasn't really one of those, not like studio, but like just, I guess, book learning wasn't really his forte. And he's just mm -hmm. like, God, give me all the, let me know exactly what I need to know to pass this exam. And he did. And I just, it's an inspiring story. Right, right, right. It's nice when, when prayers are answered. Oftentimes they aren't answered, or at least not in the way you always expect. But That's I think true. prayer, has, I mean, for me, prayer has the importance that it, it sort of makes you calm down and think about what's really important, what's significant, and, and how unimportant a lot of the things you pray for really, really are. If I pray that a proposal gets through, well, it doesn't, it's not going to be the end of the world, and I'll just do something else, and maybe I'll be even more interesting. So, yeah, um, that's a really great you know, point. Especially, yeah, I think prayer is important that way, for me at least. Yeah, and I like that you kind of bring up that if it a prayer doesn't get answered the way you want, it's not the end of the world, because the whole idea is God has a plan that's better than or, well, it's always better than our plan. We just don't sometimes see it right away. Mm. And then we're just like, what the heck, God? Like, the, I thought this was the way it was going to go. And God's just like, you thought, but I thought better. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's always, it's really impactful to me, that whole nativity story that, you know, people were expecting Messiah to come in the form of a huge, mighty, powerful king and establish a kingdom. And <laughs> the whole thing is, this came as a small child being born in a barn. You know, yeah. it's just, just such a beautiful lesson, I think, to tell people your expectations are not always what they should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay for our expectations to get overturned because the world out there is surprising. If we've learned anything from just the scientific discoveries that have been made in even the last 50 years, right. you know, things beyond our wildest dreams have we've realized our reality. Right, right. And you know, that even filters over to the, the scientific realm where you have expectations that you shoot an electron at this uh, two slits, it's going to go through one or the other, but suddenly it goes through both and you have to understand that. It's not what I expected. <laughs> That's why you really learn things when things happen that you don't expect. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. When you were talking about 
prayer do you have specific styles of prayer that you're drawn to like are you are you more of a rosary person a mental prayer um, yeah i would say mental what? i like to follow jesus uh, taught like when you're praying don't let people really know you're praying don't make a big deal about it yeah i always get finished about people who do like to make big deals about them praying and force other people to pray just as they do i think prayer is something very personal very private that you can easily do just thinking about yeah and uh, for me that's the way i like to pray yeah and i think you bring up a good point on the personal nature because different people are more inclined to because some people might be more of a rosary person some might be more drawn to lexio divina some might be more of a mental prayer ignatian meditation and mm -hmm. there's almost however many different people there are there's that many ways to incorporate prayer into your life right and i do think it's valuable to be around praying groups with other people who are praying in a similar way so you know going to going to mass i think is valuable very valuable yeah. thanks seeing everyone there and sort of that they're open to greater things and many of them are in pain but they are you know, trying to deal with their pain the best way they can and they get solace from seeing people around them yeah. one of the things i i felt bad about in the pandemic when one of my favorite parts of church is a sign of peace when you'd uh, yeah pre-pandemic everybody would hold hands and every once in a while you get to be next to somebody they don't really want to hold your hand but then they do and, and you can see that they feel really connected yeah and, uh, i remember that felt in the months after everything was starting to get back to normal sometimes the sign of peace would be kind of awkward because you weren't sure whether or not right, right. someone was willing to shake your hand fist bump. or fist bump or whatever because I had at some point realized just kind of the importance of the sign of peace in this specific liturgical rite because it's that moment where you go to those around you and you're like, hey, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. Let's right. make up. And because it all ties back to one of Jesus's exhortations in the gospel where he's like, you know, if you have a quarrel with your brother, go make it right and then come offer your sacrifice. Right, right. Yeah, I really like the way that lesson is sort of centered on people, not obeying some rightness as early on. puts a focus on the relationship of one person to another. Yeah, and relationship, it's really important because you know that when you have a relationship with someone, you realize you have deep down there are commonalities between you and you can connect on those commonalities and it really humanizes people. Yeah. Right, exactly. Which is something yeah. that our world needs more of. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That you know, human connection is is really important. I think, you yeah, know, well, it's obviously important. But you know, getting that human connection is difficult sometimes. So having ways to do it and like a structured prayer time with people is with mass is uh, is one one way to do it. Of course, and there are other ways. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of that same thing is reason why I'm glad that AAS was finally in person again, because then I got to meet you. I got to meet a lot of really cool people. Right, right. I'm not there. saying really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is true. I mean, especially for younger people like yourself, that making these connections and just necessarily networking, well, that's certainly important, but just making connections and seeing what people are doing and how people think about certain things, it's it's really, really important. It's hard to do that when you're not together and have like chance encounters. I mean, Zoom is great, I think, but it, you don't have those chance encounters with people where suddenly you get into a conversation and you say, oh my God, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. what if that happened? Yeah. That's, yeah. I think science, almost 80, 90% of science gets done that way. I think people just having coffee and saying like, hey, did you see this? Or did you think <laughs> about that? Or what about this? And, 
Yeah. 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 That's definitely the ideal and how to do it. And some of the best ideas come from just mulling things over. Right. Right. Connections you never thought to make suddenly get made. And, you know, in some yeah. ways, I think that the way God speaks to us and uh, gives us a little nudge every once in a while about why don't you, why don't you try try this? Okay. Yeah, it reminds me. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show The Chosen. It's um, no, yeah, it's it's a crowdfunded TV show about the life of Jesus through the eyes of the people who encountered him. And uh-huh. I was watching the season finale last week, and I just remember as I was watching it, I was just like, I made like so many like connections that I hadn't previously thought about. And I was just like, whoa, this was like a hour long episode. And it made me think about so much. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And when that happens, it's uh, it can happen in a uh, faith based context, it happens in a scientific context. And whenever that happens, it's the light bulb goes off and some of the darkness goes away. Exactly, exactly. Well, with that point, that is a good segue for my last question. And I always like to ask this of every single guest that I have come on. And it's how do you see science and faith intersecting or inspiring each other in your life? Well, they do inspire. Yeah, there is an intersection and an inspiration I get from both. I mean, one of the great things about being an astronomer is you do understand sort of the scale of this whole mm-hmm. universe. And so if you're a believer or a person of faith and you believe in God, you know, God is a, a God of this whole thing. He created this whole thing for some purpose. And, you know, when, with all these balloons flying over and everything, people are talking about UFOs and alien <laughs> encounters yeah. and all this kind of stuff. craziness, but it seems almost unimaginable imaginable that in this whole universe there aren't other intelligent life forms and i often wonder how what they think about what what their faith life is like but the even more unimaginable thing is like imagine if there's not you know this whole universe has just been created so this one small planet in this one small galaxy in this one small galactic cluster in this one brief period of time in the history of the universe, we're here. What does that say about purpose in life and why God put us here and, and so forth? So I think those are the, that's that's a real big intersection I think I have in, in terms of uh, faith and, and science. Yeah, because purpose is key. If you don't right. understand what your purpose is, how can you fulfill it? Right, right. And I think in a lot of ways, life is just trying to understand your purpose. And you go, now when I was a kid, I thought I was here for one reason and then became a teenager that became some other reason and then it became uh, adults and that became another reason and you continually have this progression but there's always some root purpose i think the fundamental purpose that you know you can always come back to yeah that's a good point and we're always realizing even deeper why we were set on this earth at this specific time right and the thing i think that gives me the most faith is like my encounters with other scientists especially those who aren't people of faith necessarily atheists Mm -hmm. and so forth because they're such good people and you know if you're brought up as catholic you know your the underlying message is be good or you'll go to hell but these people don't have that message they're just good people because they want to be good people you know that's uh seems to be the way uh you know the way god shines through most brightly is through yeah yeah in a sense we all no matter whether we have faith or not we recognize certain truths are universal and that there are things that are good to do and that there are things that are not good to do right right and you know if you're brought up in a faith tradition it's you get that from your schools and your parents and and so forth but but if you're not brought up in that tradition you just come to that understanding on your own which is i think a beautiful 
Yeah. It's really inspirational. Yeah. Well, we have been chatting for about an hour. Do you have any last minute comments or anything for our listeners? No, I you know when you go outside at night, you know, especially if you're blessed with dark skies, look <laughs> up and appreciate the the wonder of uh, what you see. And, you know, what you see is only an, a handful, really a bare handful of stars, 6,000 stars or something, and, you know, some clouds of dust. But the universe is so much bigger. And uh, think about your place in it. Yeah, it's a great reminder for us all. Well, to my listeners, I hope you had a great time listening to me and Mike chat and stay tuned for more amazing content. Thanks again for listening to the Shine Bright Like the Firmament podcast. Please feel free to like us on social media, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and give us a review. Always feel free to suggest future guests for this podcast, but most importantly, don't be afraid to be a light to this world.